You guys like inspirational speeches? You know, outstanding motivational speeches. There have been a number of them in history. I think of Winston Churchill's Never Surrender speech. JFK's Ask Not What Your Country Can Do For Your Speech. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. General Patton's speech before the troops. Then we think about movies like Remember the Titans, Miracle, Apollo 13, Armageddon, Independence Day. We will not go quietly into the night. We will not vanish without a fight. We're going to live on. We're going to survive. Today, we celebrate our Independence Day. And the crowd just goes, <gasps> right? And you're on your couch like, I'm ready to whoop up on some aliens. <laughs> or my personal favorite, favorite, Braveheart. William Wallace, portrayed by Mel Gibson in this movie, he's standing before the troops of the Scottish army and they're about to embark on warfare with the British in the Battle of Stirling. And he gives this rousing Sons of Scotland speech. Funny story. <laughs> July 4th, 2004 was the very first time I ever preached a sermon in my life. And I remember that vividly that day because it was July 4th and so I wanted to preach on freedom, especially freedom in Christ. And so to start off the sermon, I memorized that whole speech and I had music playing in the background. I did it in a Scottish accent, which was probably terrible. But I was, I was starting off this sermon. And so, you know, I get to the point where, like, they may take our lives, but they're not going to take our freedom. Now, here's what I haven't told you. The venue I was preaching at was a youth detention center. <laughs> a youth correctional facility for high school-aged youth. And so when I got to that point, they may, they'll never take our freedom. They all, these are 100, 200 high school guys stand up and they start going, freedom, freedom. <laughs> And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, oh no. <laughs> First time preaching and I incited a prison riot. <laughs> oh man. But was it, what is it about speeches that just mm, rouse and rally us, just, just inspire us so much? Well, I think it's because every speech, every single speech has one thing in common. And that is that they appeal to something greater than ourselves. We see that in Psalm 46. If you turn to Psalm 46, this psalm is known as and classified as the psalm of confidence. That's what they called it. It was a rallying cry of victory. And many believe that this psalm was sung liturgically uh, in the city of Jerusalem when enemies were approaching, when they were being threatened by invaders who were about to siege the city. They would start singing this. Loudly, they would start reciting this psalm to remind them of who God is, how powerful he is, and the protection that they had under him. Which is why verses 4 through 7 start to make sense. So the whole point of Psalm 46 is this. God's powerful presence conquers fear. Let's look at the text. Verse 1. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. He's our refuge and strength, our stronghold. You might say he is our hiding place. He, he's that place in which no one else can get us. When I was younger, I remember being in my, my bedroom and it'd 
be dark and I was by myself and, and the, the light would start to shift and cause the shadows to move and I immediately, rationally as a kid, think, oh, it must be monsters then. I'm thinking there are monsters in my closet and so I do what every kid does other than yelling for mommy, that's a given. I take my blanket, my bed sheet, and I pull it up to my neck and I'm looking like this, like, oh, okay. All right, what's going on? And then another shadow moves and I, I go under the blanket, right? And, and if you think about it, in the mindset of a child, psychologically, what they're thinking is that this thin sheet of cotton and polyester, this 300 thread count bed sheet, is going to be an impenetrable force that monsters cannot possibly break through, this barrier, this, this force, this shield that monsters can never get in. And we, we laugh because that sounds silly, but when they're under that sheet, when they're under that blanket, hiding, they're in a place of refuge, a refuge was a shelter for protection. And a refuge back in the day was a relief from the storms, as we see in verses 2 and 3, and a relief from battles, as we see in verses 8 and 9. And so God offers relief from the storms of life and from the battles of life. But listen, church, does it say in this psalm that God keeps us from troubles in life? That he doesn't allow us to go through the storms and battles. Does it say that? No. No, in fact, it actually assumes that we do. It says a very present help in trouble. It assumes we're going to go through difficult times. The difference is God offers us his presence. He offers us himself as a refuge and strength during those times. And so we can run to him to find peace in our souls. In him we find a quiet confidence says he is a very present help in trouble. This phrase in the Hebrew, we don't really have a word-for-word -word translation in English, and so here's the best we could come up with. God is our refuge and strength. He is, listen, a help in distress who lets himself be found exceedingly. God is a help in distress who lets himself be found exceedingly. Did you catch that? God is our help in troubles, and he is incredibly, unbelievably, abundantly, immeasurably, exceedingly available to help. He's exceedingly present. He's not just one call away. He's not just there to save the day. Superman ain't got nothing on him. He's there. He's with us. He's present exceedingly Oh, Lord, I need your help. You ever, you ever cry out that prayer of help to the Lord? If you read my prayer journal, you would notice that half of the prayers that I write down are things like, Lord, I need help with this. Help me with that. Help me with this going on. You ever pray that prayer? Lord, help me. How often do you pray that prayer? Is that a prayer that God delights in? Let me answer that question with scripture. I looked up every single time I could find where scripture mentions a cry for help in prayer. And here are several that I found. Exodus 2, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And God heard their groaning. Second Chronicles 14, King Asa cried to the Lord his God, O Lord, there is none like you to help between the mighty and the weak. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you. Psalm 18, 
In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Psalm 22. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Psalm 28. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help. Psalm 30. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. Psalm 31. You have heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Psalm 34. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Psalm 38. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Psalm 40. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Psalm 44. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Psalm 60. O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. Psalm 79. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for, your, for our sins, for your name's sake. Psalm 106, remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people, when you help me when you save them. Psalm 109, I gotta catch my breath. Psalm 109, help me, O Lord, my God, save me according to your steadfast love. Psalm 119, I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. Lamentations 3, I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear for my cry for help. Matthew 15, but she came and knelt before Jesus saying, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. And these verses are just a fraction of the hundreds of times that a cry for help in prayer is mentioned in the Bible. Don't you think that maybe, just maybe, just perhaps God might delight in that prayer when we cry to him for help? Why? Why would God delight in our cry for help? I believe it's because prayer or lack thereof, shows where we have our confidence. And so prayerlessness, pride, and uh, uh, self-centeredness, self-dependence, they go together. I love the story in Mark chapter 9. Jesus' disciples are with this father, and the father's son has a demon. And so this boy is just convulsing, having tremors, he keeps falling down. The the father says that he falls into water, into fire, and the demon's trying to hurt him and harm him. And so he goes to the disciples. The disciples can't do anything. So Jesus comes up, and he says, what's going on? He says, well, I, I came to your disciples. They couldn't help my son. If you can, please help us. And Jesus is like, I'm sorry, if you can? If you can? Nothing is impossible for those who believe. Nothing is impossible for God. And if we were to be honest, when we pray, that's kind of how we pray. God, if you can, would you help me with this issue? Would you help me with this problem? Would you help me with these troubles in life? If you can. Now, if you pray, if you will, that's different. Not all of our prayers are according to God's will. That's okay. But if you can, there is nothing that God can accomplish. Nothing. And so... The father says, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Oh, friends, how many times I have prayed that prayer. I do believe. Help my unbelief. And Jesus heals the boy. He casts out the demon. He says, you to the demon, do not enter him ever, ever, ever again. He answers the prayer of the father. He answers that cry for help. Then the disciples come up to him and go, Jesus, what gives? Why couldn't we do that? And he says, this kind could come out by nothing but prayer. Nothing but prayer. We neglect prayer. We neglect prayer because we underestimate how massive our God is, that our God is a very present help in trials. Look at verse 2. 
Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. He says, therefore, since God is our refuge, therefore, since God is our strength, therefore, since God is our exceedingly present help in trouble, we will not fear. We will not fear. It's literally saying, even if the earth was changed, if the tectonic plates shifted and the surface of the earth, the topography of the earth just crumbled, mountains are falling down into the heart of the sea, and the waters roar and foam, we will not fear. In fact, this is describing a shattering earthquake, a 9.9 on the Richter scale kind of an earthquake that is so massive that mountain ranges fall into the heart of the sea, which would inevitably cause a tsunami. Imagine that. Imagine this scene, if you will. Movies like The Day After Tomorrow, 2012, San Andreas. These are movies that feature intense visual sequences like this where there's a massive earthquake and there's this huge tsunami and we're on our couch with our popcorn like, you know, it's entertaining, right? But in reality, this would be terrifying. Think about an earthquake that rocks Chicago so much that buildings are just crumbling down and and it's so massive that there's a tsunami from Lake Michigan that starts heading to Crown Point. And our attitude is like this. 30-story tsunami. Huh, okay. That's what he's saying. Notice the, the calm demeanor and confidence. Though the world is collapsing, we will not fear. And if our life was to crumble, our natural tendency, the bend in our human nature, would be that we would begin to crumble. Faith would falter into fear. Hope would give way to to despair. Joy would turn to sorrow. The weight of the world would be bearing down on us. It would just be unbelievably crushing and it would be easy for us to give up. And most people would say that's a natural reaction. All those things. That's natural. But we don't follow the ways of natural man. We follow a supernatural God. And our God says, come. He says, come to me. Come to me. Allow me to be your rock-solid foundation. Though the earth may crumble, I will never crumble. Though people may abandon you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Though your heart may fail, I will never fail. Though you may want to quit, I will not quit. I cannot quit. I absolutely won't quit because I am God. An exceedingly present help in troubles. And so number one, God is our refuge and help in hardships. Verse four. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. 
Notice the abrupt change of scenery from verse 2 and 3, particularly with the water. In verses 2 and 3, the waters are raging, they're surging, they're swelling, they're chaotic. But now in verse 4, there's a calm river with streams that make the city of God joyful. In fact, in the Hebrew, some of the exact words from verses 2 and 3 are used in verse 6. And so in verse 2, the mountains were tottering. Now the kingdoms are tottering. In verse 3, the waters are raging, and now the nations are raging. They're roaring. And so no matter if we are talking about natural disasters or earthly battles, whether we're talking about difficult circumstances or difficult people, the point is that God is there to help. He's there among us. And without God's presence, there is chaos. But with God's presence, there is confidence. Look at verse 6 again. What's different about this section is that it features God's power. It says that God utters his voice. Literally, he makes a sound. And the earth melts. At the sound of God's voice, the earth, he can make the earth melt. We don't even begin to understand and wrap our minds around how big and powerful and mighty our God is. This may or may not shock you, but when I was a kid, I might have been a troublemaker. <laughs> Actually, not might have been. I, I, I was. Uh, I was a total ornery rascal. And my dad would jokingly tell me, Jared, I made you. I can take you out. <laughs> and I assume you're laughing because you've used that line, parents, or you've at least thought about it. I made you. I can take you out. God, listen to me, God made everything. There is nothing in all creation, nothing in the universe through which God did not make. With the sound of his voice, he spoke creation into existence. He spoke existence into existence. Nothing that has been made that he didn't make. And he, if he wanted to, had the power, has the power to take it all out. He has truly mighty, awesome power. And when he has that kind of power, why would we quake though the mountains quake? Why, why, would, why would we crumble, though the earth crumble? Why would we fear if the kingdoms roar and rage and the nations come against us? Why? Romans 8.31 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God's got our back, I don't even, even want to know who's on the other side trying to go toe-to-toe with our God. If he's got our back, if he is for us, who dares stand against us? Who's going who's to come against us if God is for us? Amen? God is with us. And it says, again, in verse 5, God is in the midst of this city. He's in the midst of his people, and she shall not be moved. In fact, the city of God is referred to here as the holy habitation of the Most High. God dwells there among his people. And there's this river that runs through the city. I believe that this is a reference to Genesis chapter 2 where Adam and Eve are in Eden and they are having this incredible, personal, intimate walk 
with God. God dwells in their midst. But I also think that this is alluding to Revelation 21. That day when Jesus comes back and we are glorifying him and we're celebrating with him. And it says that the city of God, the new Jerusalem, is coming down from heaven. And it literally says in Revelation 21.3, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Are you looking forward to that day? If not, something's wrong with your heart. That's going to be awesome. It says in verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. What is the Lord of hosts? What does that mean? Well, hosts means armies. And so God certainly controls vast, innumerable legions of angels in the heavenly army. But more than that, this name specifies God's sovereignty. Meaning that God is over all and he reigns over all. He rules over all. God is almighty, he's all powerful, and he is sovereign. That means God is in control. There is no, John Piper says, there's no square inch of this universe that God cannot say, mine. He's almighty, powerful, sovereign. And this almighty, powerful, sovereign God is with us. He's with us. It doesn't say he's over us, above us, beyond us, although all those things are true, but he is with us and among us. Biblical Christianity has the most appealing and best understanding of God's transcendence and God's imminence. If you don't know what those words mean, that, that's okay. Those are $10 fancy theological words. But transcendence basically means this. God transcends time and space. He's massive. He's big. He's outside the universe. He's, he's sovereign. He's powerful. But God is also imminent, meaning that he is intricately involved in his creation. He's intimately Evolve, in, in, involved with us. He's among us. He's present. And you can't have one of those without the other, without having a false understanding of who God is. And some worldviews try that. Some worldviews like Islam and deism hold God's transcendence high. They believe that God is powerful and mighty and holy, but they don't believe he's imminent. And so he's cold and he's distant. He's impersonal. Other worldviews like pantheism believe that God is so imminent but not transcendent that he's in his creation. He's a part of his creation. And so they would see him as loving but maybe not as powerful. Listen, God is both transcendent and imminent. He is both powerful and holy and he is loving and near. He is both over and above us and he is with us and among us. And in this psalm, he is shown to be sovereign, mighty, holy, powerful, and exalted. But simultaneously, he is comforting, protective, eager to help, and near to us, exceedingly present. Folks, listen. We all know that people sometimes tend to treat God like he's this genie in the sky granting wishes. And if we were to be honest with ourselves, that's sometimes how our prayers go. God, I want this, I want this, I want this. And we kind of give a laundry list of all the things that we want, all the stuff we want from God. But the goal of the Christian life is not to get stuff from God. It's to get God. The best part of salvation is not eternal life. 
Although glory, glory, hallelujah, I can't wait for the day when we spend eternity in heaven. The best part of salvation is not freedom from sins, but praise God that he has unshackled us from our sins through Christ. The best part of salvation is not purpose and hope and life, but I thank him so much that we have those things. The best, greatest aspect of the gospel is that we are forever dwelling with God. That he dwells with us. So number two, God's presence gives us steadfast confidence. Look at verse 8. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The psalmist says, come, look at God's works. Check out what God is doing. Look at how God defeats all his enemies or will defeat all his enemies and how he enacts peace. Ultimately, this is depicting God's total victory over all, over all his enemies, over all those who oppose him. We just read it. We just sang it. This is the day when Jesus makes his enemies his footstool. And the prince of peace conquers his enemies and so Peace reigns forever, and he causes all wars on earth to cease. What a day that'll be. And those of you who have friends or loved ones, family in the military, wouldn't you love, wouldn't it be amazing if there were no more need for soldiers? No more need for armies, battles, weapons would be useless. I mean, can you imagine a world at rest Can you imagine the nations in total peace? No more conflicts, no more power struggles, nothing but peace. Do you realize that since World War II, there have been more conflicts than the previous 19 centuries combined? More wars, more battles. Humanity is getting more and more violent. And yet this says, God will destroy the weapons of warfare. He breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. He burns the war chariots with fire. God is and will be victorious, and he gladly shares that victory with us. He will triumph over his enemies, and they are nothing to him. Oh, sure, right now Satan is laughing it up. He's scheming. He's devising. He's enacting his evil plans. But I am pretty sure, reading scripture, that God is the one who has the last laugh. Oh, sin and death tried to knock our Savior down, but they found out real fast that they couldn't keep him down because he is God and he is victorious and he will be exalted in all the earth. He will be exalted in all the world among every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every language, every people group, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And in the midst of chaos In conflict and catastrophe, God is there and he is victorious. And we see in verse 10, this is the actually the only verse where God is speaking to us. Verse 10, be still and know that I am God. How many of you have heard that verse before? 
Yeah, many of us. I've heard it a number of times. And usually when I hear it, it's talking about how we need to be silent and have solitude and meditation before God. And that's true. There's truth to that. Those things are great, but that's not what it's saying. In fact, the word in Hebrew for be still is the word rafa. And it literally means drop it. Let go. The New American Standard Version says cease striving. You know when you're on a road trip and you're in the front as parents and you have your kids in the back and, and one kid is playing on, you know, iPad and, and the other one's like, you've been on that long enough. Can I have it? No, it's my turn. No, you've been on it for three minutes. No, I am going to. And then just start fighting and you turn around and you're like, would you stop it? That's the word we see here. In fact, use that with your kids this afternoon. Rafa. Might not do anything, but that'd be weird. Drop it. That's, stop it. Stop fighting. Just drop it. Quit it. That's what it's saying. Imagine a game of tug-of-war. You guys know tug-of-war, right? You have this long rope, and you have two sides in this game. One side is trying to pull the other side into the pit, and the other side is trying to do the same, pull the other side into the pit. And I don't know about you guys, but it, doesn't it just seem like sometimes life is one big game of tug-of-war? And sometimes, seemingly, it looks like we're losing. We are there grabbing the rope and we're struggling with all our might and we're pulling so hard and we're, we're, we're gritting our teeth and we're pulling with all the strength that we have and meanwhile, our enemies are on this side. Sin and guilt and shame and problems and issues and fears and doubts and Satan and it's like they're going, ha, 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 ha. And they're just pulling us in as we're on this side just slowly being dragged almost into the pit. And God says, Rapha, let go. Drop it. Because what we don't realize is that as we are pulling, as we are struggling, as we're just bearing with all our might, God is there holding the rope right behind us. He's on our side. And he's saying, would you let go? Let me do my thing. <laughs> Allow me. And we're letting, we're just pulling and pulling, and finally when we let go, God says, watch this, whoop, <laughs> and they all go right into the pit. It's nothing to God, because God is victorious. He always has been, he is, and he always will be. God never, ever, ever loses. We just need to let go. There's an old cliche. It's a cliche for a reason, though, which is we need to let go and let God it's cheesy, I know, but that's literally what this verse is saying. Let go. Let God quit. Quit wrestling with worry. Abandon your struggle with stress. Stop and just let go. Moses is one of my heroes of the faith. Not because he was this untouchable, perfect guy, but actually because he's so relatable. In Exodus chapters 3 and 4, God appears to him in the form of a burning bush. Now listen, if God appeared to you in the form of a burning bush, a talking, burning bush, and asked you to do something, wouldn't you be like, okay, yes, sir, right? But you know what Moses does? He starts giving excuses. Y yeah, but, yeah, but, and that's, honestly, that's sometimes how we often respond to God. Yeah, but, be still. Yeah, but, be still. Yeah, but. God says, I want you to go 
to my people in Egypt, and I want you to be my mouthpiece, and I want you to set them free. I'm going to direct you. I'm going to guide you. And Moses says, yeah, but who am I? Yeah, but who do I say you are? Yeah, but I can't talk very well. Yeah, but how, how will I know if the people will believe me? And then finally he says, yeah, but please send someone else. And every single time, God reaffirms Moses by reminding him that he, the Lord, is with him. Where is our confidence when we trifle with worry and anxiety and fear and apprehension and doubt and stress? When we do those things, our confidence is not really fully in the Lord. It's in ourselves. It's maybe in others. It's severely misplaced. Because we forget that God is God. The movie Rudy, one of my favorite sports movies of all time, Rudy is sitting there with Father Kavanaugh in this uh, church. He's talking to this Catholic priest and he's just telling him all his problems and worries and anxieties and things going on. And Father Kavanaugh says, Rudy, listen, in 35 years of religious theological studies, I have learned two hard, incontrovertible facts. There is a God, and I'm not him. Everyone repeat after me, God is God. I think we can do better than that. God is God. But I am not. Not as much gusto on that second part. God is God, but I am not. What an amazing reminder we need to tell ourselves all the time. And the Lord says, look, be still and know that I am God. In Hebrew grammar, the words for be still and know are called uh, coordinate imperatives, which is a fancy schmancy pants way of saying they are commands that go together. So like repent and believe, two sides of the same coin, be still and know. Can't have one without the other. First, you must be still and let go, and then you know that he is God. The second command is contingent on the first. And so we let go and know God's saving power in our lives. John Parsons puts it this way, we give up trusting in ourselves and our own designs in order to experience the glory of God's all-sufficiency. Now, the Lord is not advocating apathy. He's not saying don't care about your problems. What he is saying is, more than caring about your problems, care that you know me. Care about knowing God. That's how you let go. When we become so obsessed with knowing God more and more, when we passionately pursue knowing him, and it's a worthy pursuit, it's the only thing that we can really be obsessed about. When we obsess over knowing God more and more and more in our lives, it becomes easier and easier and easier to just let go. So we can let go and know that he is God. You can only have one God in your life. You or the Lord. And when we worry and when we submit ourselves to fear, we're trying to take control. We're trying to be our own God. And God the Father cannot be your Lord. He cannot be your God until you let go and stop trying to be your own God. That's why letting go is so essential. Let go and then know that he is God. When you let go and you surrender fears, you will find peace in God's power and presence. 
So he says, shh, rest in me, let go. For many of us, we have big mountains in our way, and they seem insurmountable. Can we be, can we be vulnerable as a church for a minute? By show of hands, if you have ever gone through or are going through or you have a loved one who has gone through or is going through cancer, would you just lift up your hand? Look around. Keep your hand up. Look around. That's a lot of people. And cancer can seem like this insurmountable mountain. Whether it's cancer or joblessness or family problems or marital issues or depression or uh, suicidal thoughts or loneliness or... uh, death of loved ones, persecution, I could go on and on and on. We see these things as insurmountable mountains, and to us, they are. But maybe instead of telling, our mount, our, uh, telling God how big our mountains are, we need to tell our mountains how big our God is. And so number three, rest in God's sovereignty. Rest in him God is our refuge. He's our stronghold, our very present help in trouble, and we are safe and secure in him, ultimately because of Jesus. Now, if you're sitting here this morning and you have not trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, God can't be your refuge. You have no foundation, no rock-solid foundation in which to plant your life. And so, yes, your life will be chaotic. Yes, you will be filled with worry and fear because you don't have the anchor for your soul But through Jesus, we have right standing. Through Jesus, we have peace. Through Jesus, we have hope. Through Jesus, we have assurance. Through Jesus, we have confidence. No longer under condemnation. No longer under fear of God's wrath and judgment. But we stand in the perfect love of God the Father through Jesus. And 1 John 4 says, perfect love casts out fear. And so, God's powerful presence conquers in the 2,000 years of church history, there have been many women, men and women who have been martyred for their faith in Jesus. And story after story has come out about these men and women who stand resolute in the face of impending doom, in the face of certain death, whether it's crucifixion or hanging or uh, speared or being burned at the stake. They're standing resolute in their faith. And they're not standing resolute. They're not standing steadfast in their faith because of their faith in themselves or their confidence in what they have done, their confidence in religion or church church attendance. They are standing confident in their faith in Christ. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that is the rock through which they can stand. So God's powerful presence conquers fear. There are two takeaways this morning I want you to hear. Number one, let go. Let go. Surrender any fears. Surrender worries and anxieties you have. Can I just tell you that is the number one struggle I have, the number one vice. And I struggle with a lot of sins. But if I could just be honest with you, fear is the biggest thing I struggle with. So I know how difficult that is to just let go. And that's why the second takeaway is probably more important. Let go and pray. Pray, God, help me let go. Help me let go. Help me to give it to you. Help me to surrender. If prayerlessness indicates self-dependence, then prayerfulness 
shows dependence on God. And so cry out to him. He's there. Cry to him for help. He's exceedingly abundantly present. And don't just ask for stuff from God. Delight in being with him. Delight in being with God. I love my daughter. We have a three-year-old daughter named Genevieve, and she loves being with me. Every single day, you can ask my wife, she'll say, Daddy, can we please play? Can we play together? And usually she's doing it like as I'm out the door, heading to work or late for a meeting. Daddy, please, just one minute. She holds up her little finger, just one minute. Puppy dog eyes, lip quivering, heart melting. Here's her finger, here's daddy wrapped around it. And I'm not an insane person. (laughs) I'm like, yes, of course I'll play with you. And so we play for a little bit. We play tea party or maybe we play with her dollhouse or maybe we play with Doc McStuffins. If you don't know what that is, maybe you don't have little kids or little grandkids. And so we just have a ball and we play together and it's so fun. And she's just, she's delighting in daddy's presence. A couple nights ago, Friday night, you guys know in this area, we had a severe, massive thunderstorm that just rocked this area. Lightning strikes all over, thunder roaring, power was going out all over. And it woke Genevieve up in the middle of the night. And so she started crying and and we came into her room and I said, sweetie, what's wrong? She said, daddy, I don't like the noise. (laughs) Daddy, I don't like the thunder. Would, Would you just... Would you pray with me? And so, I, of course I did. We prayed together. And I start to leave. And she says, Daddy, please don't leave. Please don't leave. Would you just stay with me for one more minute? Daddy, would you protect me? What kind of tyrant would go, no, protect yourself. Peace, I'm out of here. Right? I grabbed her in my arms and I scooped her up and I held her so tight and I clung to her and I whispered in her ear, Daddy's here. Daddy's here. Daddy's present. Daddy will protect you. That's just a noise. Don't worry about that. That's just a noise out there. Daddy's got you. And we're talking about the love of an earthly father. How much more the love of our heavenly father. And we cry out to him for help. Lord, help me. Lord, Be with me, please. I'm going through all this. I need you. I need you. Don't you think that God wraps us up in his arms and holds us so tight and pulls us in and says, I got you. I'm here with you. I'm exceedingly abundantly present with you. I'm here. Don't worry about that out there. That's just a noise. That's just a noise. I've got you. That's what it means to let go and know that he is God. 